0: know God and to make him known. That is our mission here at the church, to have an intimate, meaningful, personal relationship with the creator of the universe, but also to go out and invite others into that same relationship, knowing him ourselves and making him known in all that we do. And we're going to continue that, of course, through our VBS and stuff, but also by knowing God better ourselves and living out our Christian faith more readily on a regular basis. And so we're going to almost finished Colossians today. Some of you guys, we're like, we're like on the precipice of being done, but we're not going to finish today. We've got a couple of more things to hit. So open your Bibles up if you have them to Colossians chapter 4, and today we are going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. 10 through 14. Now, we are only... Only, there'll only be four verses left once we're done today we will get to those in two weeks next week we'll be VBS focused and wrapping up VBS concepts and ideas but this uh, this book of Colossians will finish out the first Sunday in August so I, Those of you who've been through the whole thing and and living through it and studying through it, you'll be excited to know we're almost through. And then we'll start some other cool stuff, including uh, this fall, starting the Sunday after Labor Day, we're going to kick off our fall teaching series, and we'll be learning how to be a Christian. So if you've got anybody who needs some help in that, how to be a Christian, really just the basic practices of the Christian life and where we find them in Scripture and why they're important to us as we mature as believers. This fall, we'll be looking at how to be a Christian. But first, today, Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. And so let's uh, open up Bibles or your Bible app and look at this passage together. So it begins this way. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice." These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers, so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. So here we are as we're wrapping up this letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church. We're, we're at the very end where we're, we're getting through the formalities, the, the things like if you were writing a letter, this would be, um, you know, and Grandma, she just got out of, out of uh, you know, rehab and we're glad just that she's still with us. And then Uncle Bob, he's still crazy, uh, but he says hello. And, you know, so that's, that's kind of where we're at at the end of the letter. We've already gotten through the meat of things. And now we're getting into the, 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 the little relational stuff here at the end. And so, as we look at this, maybe we read these passages and we wonder, what does this have to do with my salvation? What does this have to do with my discipleship journey? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we looked at that in my Sunday school class this morning, tells us that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, or training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we read a passage like this, and we might wonder, how is this God-breathed? How is this inspired by God? And how will it either correct, rebuke, teach, or encourage me so that I might be thoroughly equipped as a believer? And we're going to try and make some application out of this passage because it's scripture. It's inspired by God, and it's useful. So first... We look at, at a number of people that Paul begins to send greetings from. And first there's Aristarchus. So you've got Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner, sends greetings. So does Mark, who's Barnabas's cousin. Uh, and also Jesus, who is called Justice. These three men who are among the circumcised, who've been working alongside the Apostle Paul and are a comfort to him. So let's look at these guys uh, just one by one and try and understand who they are and, and why they are significant. So first we have Aristarchus. And uh, I just, I love names in scripture. Uh, it makes me want to be a young parent again and name my kids. Uh, just because, you know, we, we, we have great kids. We gave them good, solid names. But sometimes you read some of these names, it's just like, I'd like to start over again. I want another shot at this. Thankfully, I'll get to be a grandparent in ever increasing measure, Lord willing, and I'll get to recommend these names. But Aristarchus, what a great name! I mean, what you'd call him wrist for short or something—that's uh, that, arc. Uh, but but what a great name, Aristarchus! And he's in Scripture in other places, not just here in Colossians. He's in Acts nineteen twenty nine, and he is among the group of men who are with the Apostle Paul as he is wrapping up his last missionary journey, going to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Paul ends up imprisoned and appealing his case to the emperor. And ends up uh, uh, in a a couple of different prisons and and moving on his way to Rome to face the emperor. And Aristarchus was on that journey the whole time with Paul. We see him from this, this first moment in Acts 19 all the way up to here later In the book of Colossians, uh, a number of years, Aristarchus would have been traveling with Paul, would have been his helper, his friend. We also see him mentioned in Philemon, and that's not a surprise because the letter Philemon was sent to this area at the same time that the letter to the church in Colossae was sent. So what do we know about Aristarchus? Well, not a whole lot other than this. Uh, Acts tells us he was a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So what we know about him is that he wasn't from Colossae. He wasn't from Asia Minor. He was from the the Greek area and specifically the city of Thessalonica. And Scripture says that, and Paul says that he is a fellow prisoner. Now, we don't know for sure exactly what this means. It seems kind of clear-cut, right? Well, maybe he's in jail with Paul. And that could be it, but the Greek is a little weird, and in the original language, some scholars think that Paul was using a bit of a metaphor to say that he had been taken captive by the gospel and had walked with Paul in, in captivity to the goodness of the gospel all these years. Either way, he either was in prison with Paul, suffering with him for the sake of the gospel, or he was captive to the gospel, like the Apostle Paul, and together they were servants of Christ Jesus. Regardless of which way you would want to interpret that, it it helps us to understand who Aristarchus is. This is a man who was giving his life for the sake of the gospel, and was willing to travel with the Apostle Paul and help meet his needs, and maybe even be a prisoner alongside him, for the sake of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now a lot of us, we, we look at somebody like this and we think, well, I could never be like that. I mean, heavens, I, I can't even say like Merry Christmas you know, to the cashier without getting a little tongue-tied or God bless you or asking the, the waiter or waitress what can we pray for you about as we pray over the food. There's no way I'm going to go to prison for Jesus. And, and so Aristarchus, maybe we look at him and go, how does somebody live like that? How does he give his life like that? The second one that's listed here is Mark. And, and most of us know this name. And if you were to think that maybe this Mark plays some other role in Scripture, you would be correct. In fact, we see him in Acts. Uh, he, he goes on the first missionary journey that Paul goes on along with his friend Barnabas. Mark was Barnabas's cousin. That's what Scripture tells us. And he was his younger cousin, it seems. And right in the middle of the missionary journey, Mark wigs out and goes home. He's like, I can't take it anymore. I got to get out of here. This is scary. This is too much going on. And he returns home to, we believe, Jerusalem. It's legend or tradition that, that Mark um, is, it was his family that owned the upper room where Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper. Uh, It's tradition that Mark is the naked guy that is listed in the Gospel of Mark and that that Mark was the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So we see he's accompanied Paul on a missionary journey. He has abandoned Paul on the very same missionary journey, but then he ends up back by Paul's side serving and an important part of church life. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.11 talks about the importance of Mark in the life of Paul. And here in Colossians, it tells us that, that the Colossian church was supposed to be ready to receive Mark if he were to come to them. And then we, we also see that, that Mark serves a role in the life of Peter. In 1 Peter 3.18, that, that Mark is with Peter. And like I said, it's believed that Mark, this same Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who traveled with Paul, who was a companion of Peter, that he is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark based on the recollections of the apostle Peter. So here is another guy. We, we, many of us go, well, I could mess up like him. I'd be happy to go on a missionary journey and then come home because that sounds easier. But, but to then to rededicate, to step back out and to give his life for the sake of the gospel, we maybe look at Mark and go, wow, He's a pretty cool dude, but I, I couldn't be a thing like him. And then we get to this, this next gentleman who's listed, and his name is Jesus, but they called him Justice. So some some things to know about this man: Jesus called Justice. Number one, he has the coolest name in the New Testament. Uh, and why do I say that? Because we named our oldest son Justice. See, see, I live out that that Bible thing where you find a weird name and you name your kid that. But um, that Justice—that's our first son, and and. Jesus called Justice. Now, you might wonder, why would they call him Justice? Well, here's why. His name in Hebrew was Joshua. Amongst the Greeks, that name transliterates to Jesus. And then in the Roman culture, they would have called him Justice. And so we see it's the same guy, it's the same name essentially, But it is in three different contexts. Did you guys know that the name Jesus or Joshua, Yeshua, if you will, was actually a popular name in first century Israel? It's not that our Savior, his name was like this one-off. In fact, we go all the way back into the Old Testament and there is a Joshua and, and a whole book of the Bible is named after him. It records his exploits as the leader of the people of Israel, the children of, of, of Israel. And, and so Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, if you will, is a very popular name. And, and there would have been a number of men in church history named Jesus. But only one, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the Virgin Mary, who was also the incarnate son of God. And so Jesus, our Jesus, is unique in that. But the name Jesus would have been a very popular name in this era. And so we have a Jesus, but we don't call him Jesus, because we've only got one Jesus. We'll call him by his Roman version of the name, Justice, which is, as previously mentioned, the coolest name in the New Testament, apart from Jesus himself. And so... uh, What we have are these three men who are willing to to give up their lives, to give up themselves, to serve alongside the Apostle Paul, and he records their greeting in his letter to the church in Colossae. Now, what is else is significant about these these three guys? All three of them were Jewish believers. They had their roots. Even, Even Aristarchus, who was from Thessalonica, he was a Jew, but grew up outside of Israel. In fact, that was not uncommon. There were Jewish, uh, well, there were Jews all over the ancient world. Uh, it happened because they were spread out in what was called the diaspora. Uh, that's a, you want a cool nickel word to use the rest of the week and sound smart? You can talk about the, the Jewish diaspora and how they, they, diaspora literally means the spreading out, the dispersion. And so they were facing persecution in the, 100s BC, and they left Israel and went all throughout the the Greek empire in order to find freedom and security, and they started synagogues all over the place. And so Aristarchus being Jewish, we might go, well, wait, he's not from Israel. It's okay. He's still Jewish. And then then we look at at the other two. We've got John Mark, a, a cousin of Barnabas, and we've got Jesus called justice, and all three of these men were Jewish believers who were co-workers with Paul. They were willing to accompany him through all kinds of circumstances. As we read through the the second half of the book of Acts, the last third especially, we see that, that Paul, the apostle, on his journey to Rome, with these men accompanying him, he faced all kinds of crazy circumstances. He was hungry, he was cold, he was shipwrecked, Paul was snake bit and was going to die, and yet God healed him. All this cool stuff goes on, and all of these men walked with Paul through it as co-workers, and he says, they're actually a comfort to me. Can you imagine being somebody that the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, like second in Christianity, only to Jesus himself? We look at him and go, he was comforted by these guys? They must be something special. Got others listed in this closing greeting, if you will. Colossians 4.12 tells us, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard of Epaphras. Epaphras, he is uh, from the region of Colossae. In fact, we see in Scripture, the, in, earlier in Colossians, it says this of Epaphras, You learned this, the gospel, from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. You see, Epaphras actually had heard the Apostle Paul preach, we believe, in the city of Ephesus, which was just south of Colossae. And that, that Epaphras had been saved under the preaching of the Apostle Paul and got so excited by the good news of Jesus that he went up north into Colosse and Laodicea and Hierapolis and began to, to share the gospel and ends up starting churches in each of those cities. And so this guy Epaphras, this servant who's dearly loved by the Apostle Paul and a servant of God, he goes and starts churches and he's faithful, And and so we see that that not only is he from Colossae, but he is the founding leader of the church, likely. And we also see in, in what Scripture tells us that he was faithful in prayer. And so how cool is this guy who starts churches, who prays faithfully for those churches that he has led in the past. And then verse 13 says this, For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. So this guy Epaphras, he's, he's set apart, he's unique, he's on fire for Jesus. And he's with the Apostle Paul, advocating for these other churches, looking for great teachers to send back and for Paul to send letters to them. He really loves these churches and is serving them with all that he is. And, and it's noticed by the Apostle Paul and how great a man Epaphras is in giving of himself for the sake of others, and so we, we see he's he's hardworking in ministry, he's faithful in prayer, he's founded churches, he's going back to his hometowns and and making a difference. And a lot of us go, "Wow, I couldn't be like that." I mean, how do you how do you become like this? How do you give of your life like this? How do you how do you just invest so much of yourself into the gospel to where? The Apostle Paul is, is sharing your greetings with, with other churches. Verse 14 tells us about two more guys. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas sends you greetings. First, Luke. As we look in Scripture, we see Luke in a couple of other places specifically mentioned. In the letter of Paul that he writes to Philemon, we see him mentioned in the closing. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul talks of Luke being present with him. And this is the only passage we have where we, we, we understand and find out that Luke was a physician, a doctor. He wasn't some sort of like Rube who believed on Jesus Christ and like, y'all, oh, oh. But instead, he was a learned man who received the gospel and got so excited by it that he traveled on missionary journeys. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. And, and we actually count him uh, traditionally as the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the letter called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the historical record there. And whenever we, you see we in Acts, so if you're reading through the story and it says we did this, that means Luke was with Paul or the other uh, acting uh, persons there at that time. So Luke is is a, 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 a intimate part of the growth of the church, the life of the church. Uh, He writes a gospel. He writes the history of the early church. This is Luke, an amazing guy, a doctor. And then we have Demas. Now, Demas is the only one on this list that you kind of go, wah, wah. Uh, Because we see him in Philemon verse 24. That's another place where he's recorded. And also in 2 Timothy 4.10. Except the problem is that in 2 Timothy 4.10, the record is that Demas actually leaves the Apostle Paul. He had been a companion. Later on, he deserts the Apostle Paul near the very end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy because, Scripture says, he loved this present world. In other words, Demas is kind of like our foil to all these other guys. We see five who are faithful to the end. We see Demas, who is faithful in this moment, but later in his life... Leaves the gospel work because he loves this present world more than he loves the gospel. Now, we might look at this list and go, all right, which one are we most like? These men of, of, of record, these men of note who give of themselves, and, and all of them, it's, it's for the most part, give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Or are we like Demas? Yeah, we'll do it for a while, but you know, I like the world more, so I'm going to go do my own thing. That's just a question. That's not the end of the sermon. Don't worry. So here we have, though, in this list, overall, just in Colossians, without adding all the other history in, we see these six men. We see them, three Jews, three Gentiles, so it doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter their history. All of them giving of themselves to God. All of them serving Christ and his church. All of them giving of themselves, even to the point of being in prison, being transported around, being persecuted, giving their lives for the sake of a church or two or three, giving their lives for the sake of the gospel everywhere they go. And so the question really becomes for all of us, what makes a life of service and sacrifice possible? What is it when we read a list of, of, of people who are giving of themselves, when we read historical accounts of, of, of women like Cory ten Boom, when, when we look at, at how some people make a difference for the gospel while others of us just kind of sit around and we're saved and we're good people but we don't ever make an impact in the lives of the world around us, what is it that makes this, this ability to just give up yourself for the sake of God possible? Because I think most of us, when we look at that idea, we think, yeah, that's for somebody else. In fact, we might look at it and say that, that there's maybe even a hierarchy of godly people. You know, that's for people who are much more godly or spiritual than me. People who read their Bible more. People who, you know, they're more spiritual. That's, that's the kind of person that can sacrifice. That's the kind of person that can give. That's the kind of person that can let go and just chase after God. I've got too much other stuff to worry about. I mean, I need to figure out, you know, what this week's going to look like. How can I trust God to be used in a big picture way? And I think it boils down to, for for a lot of us, that we we just think that it's not possible for us. Or we think that we're not good enough. Or we think that, I don't don't know what God's will is for my life. And so I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait. And I'm going to sit on my hands and just see what God really wants me to do in hopes that one day... Maybe there'll be a crack of lightning and I'll, I'll hear a voice in the thunder and it'll say, go and be a missionary. And then I'll know that's what God wants for me. Or may, maybe there'll be handwriting on the wall. And by the way, you don't want handwriting on the wall. That's, that, that was a, a sign of judgment. Uh, but it, you know, maybe God will just be blatant and like he'll reveal his will to me and then I can finally move forward and get out of this holding pattern and step out and be confident and I can, be like, I can be like Aristarchus and, and Justice and Mark and, 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 and Luke and, and Epaphras and Demas. I can really, someday, once God makes clear what his will is for my life, then I can step out and serve. Then I can step out and become. And I want to get us... To a place where when we look in scripture, we can understand how men like this, how women like Corrie ten Boom, how others who have given themselves for the sake of the gospel, how do they step out? Because how do they know what to do? How, do? how do they know how to serve? How do they know what God's will is? We get to this point where we're struggling. And I want to see what it is that, that Epaphras is actually praying for the churches. And I, I want you to know this is, this is something that is possible For us if Epaphras is praying this prayer that we would stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills then it must be possible for us as Christians to stand mature and to be fully assured in everything God wills now I won't make you raise your hands but I want you to think about it could you raise your hand right now and say I am fully assured in God's will for my life I'm am f- absolutely certain. <laughs> I said, "Don't raise your hand." You didn't listen very well, Sam. But I'm glad you feel that way. No, that, that, that's that's. Uh, so so some of us, though, we we're, we're just like we we don't even feel like we know a little bit of God's will for our life. How can we stand mature? How can we be like these great men and women of faith, who's, who who changed the world by their willingness to sacrifice? How how could they trust God like that? They can't possibly know that that was God's will, or or maybe they did, and and I can't know because I'm not that much of a Christian. And and so when we look at these two things, to stand mature, let's look at that first and think about that first. To stand, what does it mean to take a stand, right? To stand, to be firm, to be resolute, to know. Now the word mature, some of us, we go, well, I will never be mature. I'm a perpetual 12-year-old. And that's just the way life is. But that's not the kind of maturity he's talking about here. Mature, not mature like stoic and, you know, hand in your jacket and what? Right? A monocle. No, we're talking about mature. The word there, it it, it means more of a picture of complete. Like God is done with me in a sense of I'm, I'm all that I'm supposed to be in him in this moment. I stand before Him with confidence because I, I know, I know that I'm in the right place with Him. I know that, that, that my life is pleasing to Him. I know that I'm in His will. To stand mature is to be in this place where you can stand before God and for others and say, it's good. Not like lie, not, not pretend, not the dog in the burning house with a cup of coffee picture. No, we're, we're talking about really being confident in who you are in Christ. And it's possible for all of us. We can be confident about who we are in Christ, and not just confident about who we are in Christ, but fully assured in everything that God wills. And so the question then becomes, well, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? And it's really important... (laughs) that we understand God's will for our life, isn't it? We, we, we want to know, how do I step forward? How do I move out? How do I do? What is God's will for my life? And we all think it's a mystery that maybe if we go to the right church and maybe if we dance the right way, play the music loud enough, um, somebody can prophesy over us and tell us the next thing we're supposed to do. And, and we think that God's will is this impossible thing to discern and we're just hoping maybe he'll give us a glimpse or a next step when in reality... The prayer for us is that we would be fully assured in everything God wills. Confident, knowing God's will for our life. Able to say, I know God's will and I am doing my best to live it out, to walk in it. So how do we get there? How do we understand what is God's will for our life? And some of us, we want to know, you know, what college to go to, who to marry, uh, when, when we're supposed to move, what job should be next. When should I trade in my car, God? I need the perfect interest rate, you know. And what, when, when do all these little things need to happen? And the truth is, is I don't know that we should be concerned with those things. Because those are not the critical parts of God's will for your life. Where you live, who you marry, where you go to school, those are not the things that God sits up there and has written out waiting to say, I'm going to dole this out to you when the time is right. Instead, God's will for your life has already been clearly revealed to you. He's already said exactly, in no uncertain words, what he wants for you and what he wants your life to look like and you might go that's ridiculous well let me show you a few examples in god's word first timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 this is good and it pleases god our savior the gospel who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth what is god's will for your life for you to be saved Do you want to know God's will for your life? He wants you first and foremost, the first thing for you to be concerned about is to look to Jesus Christ and to submit to him as your Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, you are outside of the will of God. If you have not done that in your life, if, if you can't look at Jesus and declare that he is your king and he is your savior, you can't declare with, with no, no doubt or lack that he is the one who died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. It's fully God and fully man and you trust in him and him alone for your salvation. If you can't declare that from the mountaintop, you're outside of the will of God. God's will for you, first and foremost, the first question you need to answer is, am I saved? Do I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Look, it doesn't matter what college you go to if you don't deal with this thing first. Why is that? Because where you'll spend four years doesn't matter compared to where you'll spend eternity. Who you marry doesn't matter until you're married to your Savior. Until Jesus is the most important person in your life. Where you live for 80 years is of no consequence if you haven't answered the question of where you will spend eternity. And so you want to know God's will for your life, the first thing you must wrestle with, the first question you must answer, am I saved? And if you're not certain today, you need to talk to someone before you wrap the day up. You know, what's interesting is none of us has promised another breath. I mean, that was a good one. I'm glad I got it. <laughs> oh, one more, right? What, what a blessing. I mean, but all of us at any moment could just be done, right? And so you must answer this question soon. And this is the first step to being in the will of God, salvation. The second Thing that we know that God desires for us, that is in His will, that is this perfect will for our life as believers first salvation second first Thessalonians four three and five for this is god's will, your sanctification. What does sanctification mean? Well it is that you will grow in moral righteousness, that you will become a person who lives according to the standards of God, as expressed in His Word, in ever increasing measure, and that you will begin to live a life that is set apart for Him, that is His. Now, um, trying to think of how to express this, right? But, but um, this this is an this is my iPad, right? This is my I, this iPad. You can't touch it. It is sanctified to me. It is holy and set apart for me. This is my iPad. Now, I I won't even let, you know, a kid, well, maybe a grandkid, but not a kid, play on my iPad. Right? This, This is mine. You may not have it. Sanctification is the same thing. In our life, we belong more and more to Jesus as we become more and more morally pure. And so His will for your life is that more and more of you would belong to Him and that you would look more and more like Him in the way that you behave. God's will, your sanctification, what does that look like? That you keep away from sexual immorality. We've discussed what is sexual immorality. Anything outside of God's definition of marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. God's will for your life is for you to be set apart for Him and to be growing in moral purity. If you're not willing to do what God has already clearly told you to do, why would we expect he's going to tell you what to do in other areas of life? Lord, what, when's the right time to, to buy a new house, Lord? Just would you, would you reveal your real will? Would you re- show yourself to me? Would you? And God just says, okay, so how about you deal with this little moral purity issue first? Yeah, but I want to know where to live. I want to know where to work. I want to know. Yeah, how about you control your mouth first and, and, and grow in likeness and let that be a priority before you worry about anything else. What about this next one? The third area, we can know God's will for our life. 1 Peter 2.15 For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by slapping them really hard and arguing with them on the internet. No, by doing good. By doing good. The third thing that is God's will for your life is to do good works to the glory of God. Salvation, sanctification, good works. God's will is plain. God's will is crystal clear for us. If we are willing to look at His Word and believe what it says, and then do it. Number four. The, the fourth, fourth thing. Fourth thing that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt is God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which just before had said, pray without ceasing. That's like all the time. It says this, give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. The fourth thing that is clearly God's will for our lives is to live lives of thankfulness for that which we've already been blessed with. How many of us, instead of a life of thankfulness, live lives of constant striving and looking for the next best thing? We do live in a culture that's trying to tell us that's how we must live, right? But Christianity says something different. Learn to be content in what God has given, and don't worry about what might come. Instead, rejoice in what is. How do you, how do you accompany the apostle Paul through shipwrecks and, and cold and heat and, and starvation and being thirsty and, and Paul even says in in one of his testimonies, nakedness. How do you you walk with him through that? How do you give your life for the sake of the church? How do you serve others? How do you become a, a, a person that God can use by being confident of his will? So what is God's will for your life? Well, salvation. And when you are saved for eternity, today's problems aren't nearly as big of a deal. Sanctification, when you know that you belong to God. You're His. You're His good possession. He loves you and treasures you. When you are His and you are becoming more like Christ Jesus, you can be confident. You, you, I, I'm in God's will because I'm His. Look, look, where I go to school, where I work, where I live, what my car is... All of that is so unimportant when I'm certain of my eternity and know that I belong to the loving God of creation. Now, they they don't fade away into nothingness by any means, but it makes it possible to live in this world in confidence regardless of the circumstances around you, knowing that you were saved and set apart so that you could do good works to the glory of God. So that you could be kind to people, so that you could help your neighbor mow their lawn. Yeesh, I should do that more often. That the, 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 the iPad's reading the Bible to us. It's cool. Um, it's better than a YouTube video talking about something weird. Just saying. Uh, we're, we're set apart. God's will for our life is good works. God's will for our life is thankfulness. Right? I, I, hope, I hope you're getting the, the gist of, of all of this and, and why uh, this, this, this short little passage about these six guys who are simply giving their lives and Paul saying hello on their behalf, what, what it means for us is they are not just six guys in church history that, yeah, great, whatever. No, these are six guys in church history that we can be like. If we can learn how to have confidence in the will of God. And confidence in the will of God doesn't mean you know the outcome of every circumstance before it happens or exactly what your next step should be, but you know that you are walking firmly in His will because you are saved and sanctified and living in good works and thankfulness. And then, of course, somebody's going to go, well, yeah, but what about? I'm looking at you. I know. You're the but what about guy. Well, what about this or what about that? Listen, the Bible answers God's will. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. If If you are saved, sanctified, doing good works and living a life of thankfulness, everything else falls in line when you have an attitude of doing it all for the glory of God. Earlier in Colossians, we've heard, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything. Where should I go to school? Where does it, where are you going to glorify God? Who should I marry? How are you going to glorify God? Where should I live? How are you going to glorify God in that? What should we watch on TV tonight? Glorify, what glorifies God the most? What's for dinner? Well, let's give it. Whatever it is, it's going to be to the glory of God, which means it probably isn't cereal, Just saying. If you eat cereal for dinner, that's fine. That's just not, I don't think that's fair. Anyway. Everything to the glory of God. Well, what about when life doesn't go the way I think it should? Being confident of this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Are you saved? And growing in sanctification? And living a life of good works? In thankfulness for the sake of, of God in everything that you do? Yeah, but it, it's, it's not going right. It's sideways. I thought this was the right step. No, it's not wrong. You ha- you're not outside of the will of God. You didn't make some terrible choice by what school you went to, or you, you, you were walking to the best of your abilities to the glory of God, and it completely tanked. Guess what? You're in God's will. Walk in confidence. Why? Because even the bad stuff, do you know what it's for? For His glory and your good. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What is the good that God is working toward for all of us? Looking like Jesus. Being like Jesus. Holy like Jesus. So that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Proverbs 24, 16 tells us this about our plans anyway, that when we think we've got it all planned out, we think we've got this, all the little details figured out and it's all lined up and this is God's good plan for me. Though a righteous person falls seven times, he's going to fall. You're going to fall. You will fall. (laughs) What's the difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person? The righteous person gets back up. But the wicked... They just stumble into ruin. They give up. Proverb sixteen nine tells us that even though we think we've got it all figured out, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Even when we think we know everything, we've got it all figured out. It's all laid out. We've we've you know done the math. We, we oh I know God's will for my life. It's this school, this wife, this husband. Not necessarily in that order, but you, you get the picture, right? That, that, that you're laying it out, you got it all figured out, and guess what? Even when you've got this great plan and you know it's to the glory of God and for your good and His glory, and, and it could still go sideways because He has ordained something different for you. But you can still be confident. Why? I'm in God's will. How do I know I'm in God's will? I'm saved, sanctified, doing good works to His glory, and I'm thankful for this life. I'm, I'm smack dab in the middle of His will. The ship is wrecking, I'm a slave in a foreign country, I'm in prison, I'm poor and destitute or I'm wealthy beyond any of my wildest dreams in every circumstance, I can be smack dab in the middle of God's will when I am saved, growing in sanctification, doing good works to his glory and living a life of thankfulness. And, and so we can be confident. Well, what about all the, yeah, stop fretting over all the whatabouts. Stop looking at yourself and going, I'm not holy enough. I'm go- not good enough. Are you saved? Are you sanctified? Are you seeking to do good works to the glory of God? And are you living a life of thankfulness? You're right smack dab in the middle of God's will, which means you can do anything. And you're good. You're in His hand. You you, you are protected, you are loved, and even when it's bad, it's good because you're saved and you're sanctified and you're doing good works and you're thankful. Now, that, of course, precludes moral impurity, right? That doesn't mean do anything, but I mean any path you choose to the glory of God and he can use you like he used these six men. So the hope is that we can pray together that all of us can reach a point in our Christian faith where instead of being questioning and naysaying, saying, God can't use me, I'm not good enough, I'm, what is God's will for my life, where am I, can I know God's will, am I out of God's will, I want you to be able to come to a place and understanding scripturally that you can be like this, mature, standing, feeling complete in Christ. Not, not to where you don't have struggles, but to where you know even when you don't feel. And then fully assured of everything he wills for you. I'm saved. I know I'm right smack dab in the middle of his will as I grow in sanctification and seek to do good works for his glory. And I am so thankful for every heartbeat and every breath. I am confident of God's will for my life. I don't know what today holds. I don't know where I'm going next week. But I am confident that I am right smack dab in the middle of his will for my life because I'm saved, sanctified, doing good works and living a life of thankfulness. And that is the hope for all of us, to to walk in this place where you are saved, sanctified, doing good works, and living a life of thankfulness, and and to add on to that to the glory of God for spiritual good, regardless of circumstances. And God can use you just like he used these six guys. God can, can shape your world differently. God can free you from that worry, That consumes you. Am I I doing what's right? Are you living a life of salvation, sanctification, good works, and thankfulness to the glory of God for your own spiritual good regardless of the circumstances? Then yeah, you're right smack dab in the middle of where God wants you. Are you living for yourself, your own desires, doing works to build yourself up and you're always looking for a little bit more? You're probably outside of the will of God. You're missing something there. Come back. Revisit your salvation. Seek purity and being set apart for the glory of God. Do good works. Be thankful to his glory for your good. And ultimately, we understand it's all according to God's glorious plan. We think about, here's what we'd like to do, and God's the one that actually takes us and makes each footstep happen. And sometimes it works how we would like, and sometimes it simply doesn't. And yet still, we can be confident that we are right in the middle of God's good plan. So today, the, the question that I have for each and every one of us, after going through this a little bit, after spending some time, are you saved? If you are not saved, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no way that you can be walking in God's good plan for your life. No way at all. If you are not saved, if you've never trusted Jesus, talk to someone before you leave today. Come talk to me. Grab the friend that you came with, the nicest looking person in the room. Find them and talk to them. And that implies that some of you are not very nice looking sometimes. Yes, I know. If you know that you are saved, Are you in a place where you are turning your life over, pursuing sanctification? If you are, you are smack dab in the middle of God's will. Are you living a life of good works? And I'm not saying everybody's got to go be a missionary, but I'm saying everywhere you go, you do things to the glory of God. Are you? If you are not, you are not in God's will. If you are, you're smack dab in the middle of His will and you're going to be confident regardless of circumstances. And then are you living a life of thankfulness? Or do you complain to God every opportunity you get? Instead of complaining, be thankful for what is. To God's glory, for your spiritual good, regardless of circumstances, and trusting in the fact that there is a sovereign God who is orchestrating things to bring others to Him that we might be used for His glory and that the church might ever increase. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your Word in this time. I pray for us the same prayer that Epaphras prayed for the church in Colossae, that we might be able to stand mature and to be fully assured in everything you have willed for our lives. That all of us here today might come to a place that we would no longer get up every morning afraid that we are displeasing you or that we're going to do something that takes us out of your will, but instead every morning we would wake up Stand up and say, I am certain of who I am in you, Lord Jesus. And I know that I am in your will because I am saved, growing in sanctification, doing good works to your glory. And I'm thankful for what you've blessed me with. May we reach a point where every day we can rise up in confidence and step out and go out into the world and not say, God, what's your will for my life? Don't let me mess up. But instead we would say, God, I am firmly in the middle of your will and so I know that whatever steps you give me, it's good. And I can suffer for your sake or I can experience good things for your sake and I'm still right in the middle of your will. I can be used mightily for your sake and proclaim your name in scary places. Or I can do it quietly in the office and still see you use me. And I know I'm in the middle of your will. Lord, help us to have confidence that we might stand mature and be fully assured of your will in our lives. And we do pray this morning, if anyone has never made that first step of getting into your will, getting into your good plans, that first step of... Submitting their lives to you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior. That today the Spirit would convict them and they would have the boldness to talk to somebody about the fact that they are a sinner separated from their loving creator by their rebellious choices. But that you, Lord Jesus, love them enough to die on the cross, to pay the price for their rebellion, to take the punishment for their sin and that you rose again on the third day to prove that you really are God and really can forgive and give new life. Help us to walk in your will, understanding it is a plan for us to be saved, sanctified, doing good works, and thankful. In your name we pray this morning, Lord Jesus.